Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment. will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together. To debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. The quest to save our people in Afghanistan and the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We have a special guest on this, Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. Hey guys, welcome back to Vince and Jason Save the Nation, where we have some really interesting conversations with really interesting people. Vince, who do we have today? Uh, today, we've got the great Chad Robichaud. He's a former Force Recon Marine and a DOD contractor with eight, eight separate deployments to Afghanistan as a part of a Joint Special Operations Command Task Force. He's also here to, to talk about his organization, great organization, Save Our Allies and the many thousands of people that he and the guys he's been working with have been able to rescue from Afghanistan so far. Chad, thank you so much for spending some time with us today, sir. Absolutely, great to be on. And of course, thank you for your service. That goes without saying, hopefully. Absolutely. Um, we've, uh, I, I just wanna know, you know, tell us about your military career and uh, where you came from. Where, you, where were you born and raised? Yeah, well, I'm from Southern Louisiana, uh, you know, born and raised there kind of the area that just got wiped out with the hurricane. Uh, matter yeah. of fact, speaking of refugees, my house is here in Texas is full of Louisiana refugees from the hurricane. And wow. so, uh, yeah, but, um, you know, I, my father was a Marine, uh, you know, my father came back from Vietnam as a very broken person. And so, you know, I've seen the, the aftermath of that, but always also seen, you know, a very broken person that always would just nothing made him happier than the, the fact that he was a United States Marine. And so that gave me a great aspiration to join the Marine Corps. Um, I had a brother uh, who's a year older than me. We were 13 and 14 years old. We decided we wanted to be in special operations. And, and uh, we started running and swimming and, and uh, you know, pretending, you know, like, like young boys do. They would be in the military and just really preparing ourselves so that we're both athletes. And about a year into that, you know, tragedy hit our family. My brother was, was shot and killed. And, uh, and so it was just devastating to me, to me and the, the family that I did have. And when I was 17 years old, I, I joined the Marine Corps to fulfill that dream. My brother and I set out and with it uh, after infantry school. I, uh, I tried out to be a reconnaissance Marine and uh, made it my first year, which is, you know, it's a very difficult challenge. You know, it, like at most special operations, like an 80% attrition rate. And so it's something uh, I just truly embraced at that very young age uh, to fulfill that dream and to do that job. And while there's many great jobs in the military, and there's probably nothing that fit me, who I am as a person, uh, just my, my gifts and talents that I believe God gave me from birth to do, to do that job and such amazing people there. What year was that? When did you enlist? I enlisted in 1993. I was 17 years old. 93. And yeah. you saw a lot of change over that time. I mean, you know, it's a, yeah. a different time, you know, 93 with tail end of desert storm. And then all of a sudden, you know, some, some relative peace, you know, there are some military operations, of course, going on in the nineties, Americans probably by and large weren't paying attention to. And then 9-11 hits and uh, things really go crazy. Yeah. And of course, you know, when I checked into my unit, you had some Desert Storm veterans that you know, did a few days in the desert. And then you had Somalia veterans. But uh, for the most part, you know, it was, it was a peacetime military. And then I spent, you know, almost 10 years uh, as a force, as a recon Marine, made it to force recon training, going to every school you could go to, you know, free fall school and dive school and all getting all these skills and certifications and did a few counter drug operations in, in you know, South like south of the border, Mexico, but nothing crazy. And then, you know, so I've always like just wanted to go do my job. That's what any young military guy who's trained in, you know, high level 
you know, high level operations wants to go do their job. But unfortunately it came at the cost of, of 9-11. And I remember, you know, as we look at, you know, 20 years right now, I remember seeing on television, those planes flying those World Trade Center buildings. And I was a, I was a sergeant, I was a team leader at Third Force Recon Company. And I remember me and my wife were sitting on a couch watching those planes hit those buildings. And I remember just thinking like, you know, my life's about to be different. Like the world is about to change and, uh, and whoever did this, we're gonna, we're gonna be going after them. And uh, I knew in that moment that you know, my life would be totally different mm-hmm. and, it, and it was. So given, uh, given what you know now um, about the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, what is your view now looking back, um, knowing that you gave so much of your life um, to service and you risked your life in, in those countries, how, how do you feel about the wars now? Well, you know, I think what you what you just said is what uh, what I hear so often is people clump those two together, right. and uh, they're two very separate things. Uh, I can't really speak for Iraq. I mean, you know, I, I do believe there are weapons of mass destruction there, but I do believe there are alternative motives uh, politically for us going there, and uh, you know, economically for us to go there. So Iraq is one thing. Uh, I can't endorse Iraq or or uh, or, but I don't want to take anything away from the troops that were there. Um, but Afghanistan is totally different. Afghanistan was something that America had to do. Uh, we had to respond for, to 9-11. Uh, we had to show strength in that moment that we would not be uh, attacked on American soil. And so the United States military responded and went to Afghanistan to hunt down and seek out those responsible for 9-11. And that was a successful mission. Regardless of what we've seen right now on television, I think every military service member that spent the last 20 years in Afghanistan that, that paid the price of losing their buddies' lives or giving away family members or, or losing limbs and their mind and their souls. Like that was something we had to do and we did it well and we accomplished that mission. Now, you know, different things happen in war times when you started uh, something like Afghanistan and as a mission creep and we get off the original mission, politicians uh, continue to do other things. Uh, I think some of those uh, political endeavor- endeavors in Afghanistan, nation building failed, but the mission that the United States military took on to hunt down and capture and kill those responsible for 9-11 was a tremendous success. And, uh, and, uh, and I'll always be proud to have been part of that. Yeah, yeah. I think most, I think most Americans still agree that the, the going into Afghanistan, you know, break stuff and kill bad guys who deserved it uh, made a lot of sense. It was the things that, that happened beyond that that there's a lot of well-earned debate about, especially when you find out, like, you know, through the Pentagon Papers, well, no, actually, the, what they refer to as the Afghanistan Papers uh, from within the Department of Defense in 2019, when you look back on that and you find out, well, there was a lot of lying going on among leadership about the progress and where all of this was going and the likeliness that Afghanistan would be able to succeed on its own. Uh, that's not a good thing to have our political leadership and military leadership, for that matter, lying to the American public. But I think you're right, Chad, that 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 initial decision to go in and to teach bad guys a lesson. Um, I, I hope Americans still look back on that and think that was the right move. We had to, and, and it's required to keep America safe. And I think that's led to this foundational lie that we've all been conditioned to believe. People like you guys in the conservative media, uh, I'm, I'm obviously a very strong patriot conservative myself. Uh, people on the left side of the, the conversation, um, I've even heard you know, you know, great conservative leaders say that we've been in this 20 year war, it's an endless war and we had to leave. I think that we've been, I think we've been conditioned to believe that. And, uh, and I can tell you that as of a month ago, that might have been true at some points, but as of a month ago, that was not true. 
And, and the reason that's important to say is because the decision to pull out of Afghanistan the way we did was based on that foundational lie that we were, we were in an endless war. We were in a 20-year war. The truth is that war has been over for about three years. The United States military was not engaged in conventional warfare with the Taliban anymore. As soon as Donald Trump started dropping mobs, uh, that pretty much ended conventional warfare. Uh, and what happened was we held Bagram Air Force Base, which I believe to be the most strategic place on the globe in this current, current era uh, between Iraq, Iran, China, Russia, uh, you know, all of our greatest enemies in the world right now, it sits there. And the international community was using Bagram Air Force Base to support the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police to keep the Taliban at bay and keep terrorism into the mountains of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And so when we say that we had to pull out of this endless war, this 20 year war and pull 4,000 troops out at one time, 2,500 troops out, uh, that foundation is, is just really flawed at its core because when you really compare it to other places around the world, we still have in Japan, 80,000 troops since World War II. We have 40,000 troops in Germany since World War II. We have 30,000 troops in South Korea since the Korean War. So why was this imminence uh, to pull 4,000 troops out without the international community's consent, without the Afghan government's consent or, or buy-in, only with negotiating with the Taliban? Why was it such an intimate thing to give Bagram Air Force Base away, the most strategic place on the globe? We did it without consent from anyone else in the world. The, the system we had was working. It was the most beautiful picture, I think, in modern the uh, history where the entire world's contributing to keeping the world safer by attacking global terrorism on its own soil. And, you know, we, we, we when I say we, the White House made the decision uh, without any other input. Jason, did you want to jump in here? Um, so I, I want to kind of ask a little bit more about some of the work that you've been doing here stateside. Like I, I looked you up and I saw that, you know, um, you talked about how your father was, was, broken from his experiences, um, I'm assuming in combat, and you had those, you know, similar experiences and, and came back and dealt with PTSD. Um, I know you're doing some work with others and, and other veterans that are that are also um, having similar experiences. And, and so I wanted you to, to hear, I wanted to hear a little bit about that. And I also, as a big MMA fan, I know you're an MMA fighter and, and a martial artist myself. I, I want to know how did that those experiences and maybe the, the suffering from the PTSD, did that have any impact over your, your martial arts career? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I did martial arts since I was five years old. Usually when I do public speaking, I say I did it since I was little, but I'm, I'm still little. I'm a five foot three. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I did martial arts is a lifelong thing for me. Before I went to Afghanistan, I was fighting professionally on the side uh, and I was undefeated. So I was pretty good at it. And uh, so I kept, I kept, uh, you know, doing that training and during my deployments. But uh, like many uh, of our service members today, after 20 years of war, um, I came home and dealt with those same things, anxiety, depression. I lost, you know, a lot of team members there. Uh, there was, there was uh, several uh, Afghans, uh, I say several, about 10 Afghans that was very close to uh, that were captured and killed uh, for working with us. And uh, these are, you might not seem like a big deal to some people listening, but these are my brothers. Like I lived in their homes, they had dinner with their families and, yeah. and uh, they were family to me and, uh, and I would have died for them and they would have died for me. In fact, they, they did die for me. So, um, so, you know, those things really took a toll. I started dealing with them, um, really some anger and, uh, and frustration and, 
And uh, I had these physiological effects started to come over me. Like my arms would go numb, my face would go numb. I felt like my throat was swelling shut, like panic attacks. And uh, and I didn't want to talk to anyone that I was working with because you know, I was in a small little special operations community. And I thought, you know, the guys would think I was weak. If I went to mental health, I might lose my clearance. And so I pushed it down and tried to deal with it. And, and uh, there were several things that happened uh, on my last deployment that, you know, I probably really not privy to, to say exactly what happened, but uh, the wheels really fell off for me. And I realized that I was not only putting myself in danger, putting other people in danger. So I finally had to speak up and say something and try to get some medical help. And uh, that led to me being brought home, diagnosed with PTSD, and it really began a downward spiral in my life. Uh, to say I was <clears throat> dealing with, uh, to really kind of give a picture of what I was dealing with at that time, um, I was dealing with both the, the extreme panic and a lot of shame. I mean, the panic attacks were like, people say all the time, like I had a panic attack in traffic the other day. That's not minimizing that, but what I'm talking about is like literally feeling like you're going to die. Like imagine drowning and being chained at the bottom of a swimming pool and the level of panic you would have for one breath of air, but you never drown, you never die. Like you're that way 24 seven. It's like being inside of a burning building and you know, wanting to jump like in 9-11 because you want to escape that, that, uh, that torment. Uh, that's the level of panic I was in. And then I was so ashamed because I worked my whole life since I was 13 years old to make it to recon and the fortune con and then to make it on a JSOC task force and work with the most premier special operations unit our country has and, and be able to represent the Marine Corps there. And, and uh, it was just such a privilege and honor to be in that position and to let those guys down. Like I felt like I let those guys down, failed on my mission. I was just really ashamed and felt like I'd failed. And so I'm dealing with all these things and, and, uh, and my wife, my counselor wanted to get me kind of out of that isolated state and talked me into getting on those wrestling mats and doing jujitsu again and, uh, and training. And, and when I did, I felt like I found a cure, you know, you can't focus on Afghanistan and jujitsu at the same time, or your buddy's going to beat you up. You have to be, you know, present. And, uh, and so I felt like it was really healthy and, and, uh, I immersed myself in it and, uh, you know, I was extremely successful. I, I won a world title. I was 18 to two as a professional. I fought all the big shows and, and I really built kind of like this platform back up. Of, of like masculinity and, and, and uh, redemption. But the truth is uh, under the, it was really a fake facade of success because I was still dealing with all those things. And, you know, I, I never got well, like uh, some people comment about alcohol or, or take drugs and jujitsu was that, that was jujitsu and MMA for me. I just, it was a place to hide and cope, but not really a place to heal. And uh, that fake facade of success is what I kind of gravitated towards. And I, I believe jujitsu is great. Like I'm, I'm about to get my, this month, I get my fourth degree black belt from Carlson Gracie Jr. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. It's a big part of my life, but you could have something that's good for you, like a medicine for being sick and you could abuse that medicine. And that's what I did with jujitsu. And at the end of that three year, uh, that three years of like really high level of success as an athlete was really also a three year downward spiral that ended with me almost divorcing my family and me attempting to take my life uh, by shooting myself and becoming another veteran suicide statistic. It over. 20 a day that we know it's over 20 a day. And, and, uh, my wife intervened and I remember her just yelling at me and asking me a question that, that radically changed my life. She asked me how I could do everything I did in the Marine Corps and you know, as an athlete and do all the, all the discipline I had to be successful professional things. When it came to the most important things, I quit. And, uh, and she was you know, absolutely right. I've been successful professional things, but when it came to being a husband, being a father, having my will to live and fight for myself and my health, I had quit and all those things. And, and, uh, that was a pretty radical, uh, moment for my life that I made a decision that I was going to get well. And, uh, there's a lot of things in my road to recovery, but probably the most profound thing was, uh, the mentorship of this local man in a church that my wife was going to, they really led me back to my faith. 
uh, kind of a rest, restored relationship with Christ and, uh, and being mentored uh, by him in biblical living and really kind of come into the realization that all these bad things that happened to me, as bad as those things were, didn't lead me to be in that closet with the pistol in my hand trying to take my life. What led me there was the choices I made in response to those things. And I never lost control of the ability to choose. And Steve began to mentor me in these biblical decision-making. And as I came to every day to a new fork in the road and had to make a choice, I can make a destructive choice or I can make a choice that would move me forward. And, and so I started being intentional about making better choices in response to the hardships I've been through. And I really just radically changed my life. I, I found restoration in my life, I found hope again. And ultimately I found, you know, what I've always sought my whole life because of how wired uh, I found purpose. And that purpose really manifested in a deep burden on my heart that I believe God put there to help other veterans find the same truths that I found. And uh, we started Mighty Oaks Foundation. That's been 10 years now. I probably wasn't in a position to start it when I did, but I had all the right amazing people come around me to help me. And uh, in the last 10 years, I've been able to speak to 250,000 active duty troops around the world to share my story, to tell, give, uh, give guidance on uh, resiliency and being prepared for you know, mentally, physically, spiritually, uh, socially, being prepared for the hardships of, of warfare. Uh, uh, again, 250,000 troops. I've given away about 150,000 copies of my books that I've written. Um, and then we have recovery programs. We do 35 camps a year. They're one week long. They're peer-to-peer -peer mentoring. And uh, we get active duty that comes, spouses, veterans. We even do first responders now. We've had 4,000 graduates over the last 10 years, but we're doing about 1,000 per year now. We pay for everything, including travel, 100% paid for. It's about a three and a half, $4 million a year project. Mm. Grateful Nation supports us to do. At, and that's at Mighty Oaks Foundation. Uh, so mightyoaksprograms.org is the website if anybody wants to check it out uh, for support or for attending if they need support and help. And then uh, the successes that we've had through that has allowed me to uh, really make an impact in Washington, D.C. I've, I've uh, testified before Congress, helped pass some bipartisan Senate bills. President Trump uh, worked with me to change an executive order to uh, bring faith-based programs back into VA and DOD. And uh, in that, I was appointed to be the uh, chairman of a faith-based coalition out of the White House for faith-based programs and, and given a direct counsel and advice to the uh, to the uh, deputy director of the VA at the time, which is uh, Pam Powers uh, during my time there. And so, yeah, it's been an amazing uh, journey to be able to pay back, you know, pay forward what people had did for me when I came home. Wow, man, you live your life with intensity. I'll tell you what, listening to all that, Chad. Yeah, I, let me just I couldn't say, help, oh, I, go ahead. I, I just want to say, I couldn't help but, but note how impressive your wife sounds. I was just about to just, say that. Just <laughs> the fact I that I want like, to meet your wife. In that, <laughs> moment, in that moment, she said like the perfect thing to you. I can't help but think God was communicating straight through her based on what you just Absolutely. said. That was that that that's just an amazing thing. Yeah. It was yeah. the right the right words at the right time. And uh, there's no more soul cutting word to me than to be called a quitter. Okay. <laughs> but she was right, you know. And, uh, she had your number. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. Um, yeah. that's amazing. So, so now with, with all of that in mind, you know, you take, you take the trials and tribulations, the things that you've gone through and you've channeled them into a charity and to trying to help other people, as you just laid out so nicely. Now we're looking at what's going on in Afghanistan. And, um, and I understand that as you watched, as each city was taken, as Bagram was taken, uh, you began to realize here in the United States that things were going South and something needed to be done to rescue the people um, that, that we owed a debt to tell us about that as you, what was happening this year, as you were watching all of this go down. Yeah. Well, I've seen this coming for a while, uh, you know, 
pretty much when, when the when the results of the election came out, and I kind of assumed that this was what you know President Biden would do. And so uh, I had spent six years uh, in the SIB process, the special immigrant visa process, trying to get my interpreter out. My main interpreter, Aziz, in my books I've written, I've called him Bashir to protect his identity. But now I can say his name, Aziz. Um, I, I have a very close relationship with him. Most people would picture interpreter as a big unit. You got one interpreter. But Aziz, because of my job as AFO, Advanced Force Operator in, in a JSOC unit, I, I essentially worked you know, with one other person or, or by myself with an interpreter and, and going out and doing clandestine logistics to really build infrastructure for our our, our salters to put our salters on target and safely get them off of target uh, in very remote areas like up in the mountains of Pakistan and Afghanistan and Nevada, federally managed tribal areas, and uh, you know go out and hunt uh, these bad guys to either capture or kill them. And so working with Aziz, it ended up being not just an interpreter relationship, but he ended up being my teammate and my friend. And uh, you know when I when I came back from operations, I didn't go back on that base. I went to Aziz's home and ate dinner with his families and you know. You know, play with his kids and mm. and and they just did life with him. So we we've developed a very strong relationship. I mean, he was polygraphed numerous times. Uh, he was highly vetted. I've seen him on the battlefield save my life, save my friends' lives, put his life in danger selflessly to save uh, you know Navy SEALs and special operators. And and uh, he's just a brave human being, a courageous human being, uh, a selfless human being that really was a patriot for his country to fight for a free Afghanistan and and to support America's interest to protect Americans that he never met before from terrorism. And, uh, and so I was committed to get Aziz, his wife and his family out. And uh, this, as I seen this SIV process was not gonna work. And we, I knew we were inevitable, that it was inevitable we were going to leave Afghanistan. I started really pushing the envelope to get him out in more unconventional ways. I was working a, a plan through Congress with some relationships I have there. Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler, by the way, amazing lady, had a heart to help me, um, but just, red tape in the State Department, it wasn't gonna happen. So I started to execute some um, kind of old school uh, ways that we did things. Myself and Dan Stenson, who I worked with, uh, started coming up with a plan. We actually contacted Richard McGinnis because one of our first covers was gonna be uh, media to go in and, and smuggle him and his family out. And, uh, and, and, we, and as things started to unfold, we knew we needed to even be faster than that. Richie's, by the way, for those who don't know, our editor here at The Daily Caller, that's who he's referring to. Yeah, R Richie was the first person I thought of that would be nuts enough to go into Afghanistan with us. He's nuts. He's right? nuts. <laughs> my friend out, and uh, and so so I knew he was up, be up, for, and he was up for doing it. By the way, so and uh, and thanks thanks to everyone at, at Daily Caller who was willing to to help us in that area. But we had to speed it up. So as we saw, you know, President Biden give a deadline. Uh, we knew the clock was ticking. I put together a small group of special operators uh, and uh, and got some money together. And um, we went to the UAE government. Uh, I couldn't say that a week ago, but I can say it now. We went to the UAE government. We've had a connection with the royal family. And we told them that we wanted to go in and not just get Aziz out, but we had realized there was other people that needed to come out. One particular group we saw was 3,000 orphans that we knew were going to be uh, exploited when the Taliban came in. And so that was our mission was to get Aziz and his family, other, other interpreters and their families, and these 3,000 orphans. And so we went to the... Uh, the royal government of UAE. We just laid out this plan. We didn't have time to really de deliberate on how it's going to happen. We just said, we need you to trust us. You want to help people. We want to help people. Let's do it. And they said, yes, they gave us uh, an airport on the military base to move charter flights uh, off of. They gave us a uh, military aircraft, about five generals that we have access to for support. 
um, and, and, uh, and a humanitarian center that sat 4,100 people. Uh, we set up a joint operations center in the United States that Independence Fund uh, in, uh, worked, uh, Mighty Oaks Foundation, who's my found, that's my foundation. We partnered with Independence Fund and started the Save Our Allies Coalition. You can learn more about it at saveourallies.org. And we, uh, we executed a plan to go into Afghanistan and move these people out to the humanitarian center in Abu Dhabi uh, of the United Arab Emirates. In about eight days, uh, by the way, props to my team, because when I say we did about, we probably did about 14 days of 22 hours a day, people sleeping an hour and a half to two hours. Just incredible courage and, and work ethic by our team. Uh, from the guys doing administrative to the people on the ground outside the wire, getting people. Uh, we, bit, we built a target list, rescue target list, uh, really identified like the cat, like we were strategic about categorizing like SIVs, Americans, uh, P1, P2 visas, women who are, be, who are vulnerable because of their widows or whatnot, uh, orphans and American citizens, of course, and, uh, and uh, Christians that would be persecuted groups. We kind of identified those, triaged them, figured out the least risk targets and how we could get to them and, uh, and coordinated effort to get to them and use the, on the ground, we used like a uh, bona fides process for seven points so of authentication to make sure we're getting the right people. Uh, got them onto uh, HKIA airport and uh, worked with the military to continue to, to vet them. Uh, military on the ground, by the way, the troops themselves were obviously great. Uh, and, and worked really well with us. And then uh, we had, we were able to coordinate uh, getting all the commercial air flights. So we became the single point of communication for the military to uncluster all these flights that were trying to come in, these humanitarian flights became a single point of contact for that. And we, uh, we started flying people out into uh, Abu Dhabi to the military base there. In about eight days, we filled up, we not only filled up about 4,100 beds, but we ended up with 8,911 uh, that we were able to get out uh, these are people that we, you know, kind of knew who we are and vetted them. And then we assisted the state department with another 3000 people. So about 12,000 people, we, we got out in uh, eight days. So amazing. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, <clears throat> I, I just want to, you know, again, I, I totally, because like, I love what it is that you're doing with mighty Oaks and we certainly want to promote that and would save our allies and, and some of the work that you're doing with veterans. Um, and again, I just want to salute your wife. And as I think the three of us can all agree that the women in our lives are the people that keep our heads on straight and remind us of our duties as, as fathers and as husbands. So I think we can all, I know Vince's wife, so I can, I can speak for Vince. I can certainly speak for myself. And now I think your wife, you know, uh, spoke volumes, which, which she said, but I do want to ask you a little bit. You said, earlier, if, I, if I'm understanding you correctly, you said that we didn't necessarily need to take the 2,500 uh, troops out of Afghanistan. Did I understand you correctly? Yeah, or 4,000 or 4, when we did the pullout, I mean. Okay, uh, so, and then you said you knew this was gonna happen after you saw the results of the election where Joe Biden won. Right. But isn't it true that President Trump is the first person who negotiated the end of the war and the complete pullout of the troops. And according to his own officials, he wanted to pull them out sooner prior to January uh, or in January of 2021. So therefore, since this was negotiated without the Afghan government, it was negotiated with the Taliban in a peace accord. We see the pictures and all of that in Doha. 
Couldn't it be that we can put the blame on the American government for this decision rather than on one administration or the other? Yeah. Part of what you said, most of what you said is, is true. Uh, but there's a key part that you said that, that, uh, that really kind of changes the narrative and that, uh, that President Trump wanted to do a complete pullout. Um, he was speaking with, uh, with General Kellogg, uh, who is President Trump's national security advisor, Mike Pompeo, uh, understanding what President Trump's plan was that's different than the administration. By the way, first of all, we'll say that this administration cannot say that they have to execute everything that President Trump put in place because we see no day one <laughs> the list yeah, no, of executive I, orders that, that changed, the, changed the direction. I mean, they, it would be the only thing, would, this would be the only thing that they did that was consistent with what was already happening with President Trump. Right. But the key, thing was that, the key thing was that President Trump never intended, uh, from my knowledge, and you know, I can't speak for him, from my knowledge, a complete pullout. Uh, he was doing a withdrawal in coordination with the, some pretty strong terms with the, with the Taliban. Now, I will say, personally, I was never comfortable with even President Trump's administration negotiating with the Taliban. You know, I'm, I'm not the president uh, in, uh, of either administration, but I, I was never comfortable with that when President Trump did it as well. However, uh, what I understand is that we would have never given up Bagram Air Force Base, and that's the key. Bagram Air Force Base, to me at this point in 2021, was not ours to give away, and that was the, the President Trump's administration's position. It wasn't ours to give away. It, was, it belonged to the international community. And so we would have pulled out of America being the lead in this, and the international community would have held Bagram Air Force Base, and the U.S. would have continued to participate, whether it's 1,000 troops or 2,000 troops, continue to participate and support the international role to support and advise the Afghan National Army. And so I think it would have been a more optics thing. Uh, I think the, the intent of the Trump administration with the Taliban was to uh, put some boundaries and parameters on, on, you know, on their, their role in Afghanistan. And, you know, uh, again, I don't, I don't agree with those conversations personally uh, for either administration, but I think what the direction would have been was much different between a comp uh, withdrawal as opposed to a pullout and what we seem to be a full surrender. Uh, very different scenarios. Uh, the key to that being Bagram Air Force Base uh, never being forfeited or given away uh, because it wasn't ours to give away at this point. Yeah, that's, so, that's, that's, so that, that's a, I think, you know, what you said is, is very fair and balanced. The fact that you, you know, you disagreed uh, with the Trump administration and the way that they handled, you know, speaking to the Taliban. But I, again, um, I do have to push back on, on one thing, and that is that the Taliban did not violate the terms of their agreement with the Trump administration. And that the Taliban, you know, basically it's, you know, from what I'm, I'm seeing, uh, the agreement was individuals or groups, including Al Qaeda, it did not allow for them to use uh, soil of Afghanistan to threaten the security of the United States and its allies. And the other part was that it didn't bar them from fighting Afghan troops or claiming uh, Afghan territories and provinces. So essentially, you know, when we talk about surrender, uh, I'm not so sure that it's the Biden administration that surrendered any more than, than the Trump administration. My, I think I agree with you. My only thing is I'm not putting on all one administration or the other. I'm saying my personal opinion here is that it's been every administration who has made mistakes in Afghanistan going back to the Bush administration, Bush, Absolutely. Obama, Trump, and now Biden and Biden had it. And I will agree with you hundred percent that Biden had an opportunity to fix this and he didn't. 
He just went ahead, went along and then tries to point backward. And he does not, that's, that's not what a president or a leader does. Right. And right. I think he's failed there. So I, I agree with you there, but you know, I think we have to hold all these administrations accountable. Well, I will say from the, on the ground level, the Taliban did violate the, those. I mean, they're, we're, we're talking about, you know, physically harming Americans, holding Americans hostage, taking Americans passport passports. I mean, they were, they were attacking them, attacking Americans openly. And uh, so, I mean, they certainly, and, and right now they're, they're holding Americans hostage right now. Uh, we, we know that to be true. So what, let me, let me ask you about that. The current state of, of affairs as we try and get Americans out uh, thousands more uh, green card holders out as well as tens of thousands of uh, other Afghan allies, including many interpreters who are still stuck in the country uh, out. Um, we see conflicting reports, Chad, uh, and maybe they're both true that the Taliban is making hostage demands in order to release the people who are staged, uh, staged at people uh, places uh, in the country, like Mazar Sharif, um, and who are trying to get out of the country. And we also see claims that the United States State Department is failing to um, clear these flights out of the country, that the Taliban is merely waiting on the okay from the United States State Department to get people out of there. the State Department kind of claiming, well, we just don't have the resources on the ground anymore to be able to vet the people who are trying to get out. So. I'm a little confused about the nature of the mission that the United States has right now to save our people and the role that the Taliban's demands are playing in keeping them in the country. What do you know? Yeah, well, I'd say that I'd say the uh, the hostage situation, everyone's saying, oh, it's, this is turning into hostage situation. This has been a hostage situation since about since about August 20th. And the reason I say that is because the NEO operation, which is a non-combatant uh, evacuation operation uh that was is a dod function a united states military function anytime we have civilians in an area we need to evacuate an area of non-combatants civilians uh the military has always done that uh the white house took that neo operation away from the military and gave it to the state department so now they have you know the ambassadors and the and the state department heads of the state department had full control of this operation it would be equivalent of me you know be jumping in to be a software engineer, <laughs> I would break something, right? They, they have no business and no idea how to do this, never done it, it's not their job. And, uh, and, and it's created a, not only a catastrophe, but it created a hostage situation right away because now you have the State Department who's doing diplomatic negotiations with the Taliban in charge of security of Americans, evacuating Americans and, uh, and our allies. Uh, the State Department allowed the Taliban uh, in about, I think August 20th, to maintain the outer perimeter of HKIA airport. Uh, and, and then we would claim that we were, we were holding that airport, we were controlling that airport. Anybody who understands military strategy knows that whoever controls the outer perimeter controls the ground space. We never controlled that airport, the Taliban did. Uh, our military was used as a resource by the State Department, just like they would at an embassy, to, to be static security and not allowed to go out and do uh, rescue operations, evacuations, even if they looked across the gate and saw the Taliban harming an American citizen, they were not allowed to engage and do that. So they were essentially just hamstrung by the State Department to be static security for the airport. If American can make it in, then they were safe. If they couldn't, they, they were not safe. And, and by the way, many Americans made it in and they were sent back out by orders of the State Department to go back in line and do the proper process to go through the Taliban checkpoints to show their blue passports. Uh, this is this is not rumor or, or conspiracy. This is 
on the ground information. I'm telling that that actually. Why would the State Department do that? Why would somebody be ejected from the airport and said, get back in line? Because they had deemed the Taliban to be the outer perimeter process to check all documents to make it into HKI airport. And which is the problem with having a diplomatic organization that's working with uh, the Taliban be in charge of that neo operation. And, uh, and so this undoubtedly cost American lives. Uh, I'm convinced of it. It's uh, put Americans in danger. And, uh, and it's, I think it's a betrayal to the American people. Uh, we, we, and, then, and then many of the Americans trying to get there stopped coming because they knew that they would have to go through Taliban. Taliban were taking their passports from them. And now if you're, if you're an Afghan American, you know, Afghan nationality, you're American, and if you get your passport taken from you, you're never leaving. It, it, ever you, you and you know that do you know of americans who had their their passports taken by the taliban for uh, i like from our team like firsthand eyewitness of, the, of that that taking place so guys on your so guys with your team saw that happen that's that that's happen. and so any communication with anybody who fits so that description to go back home uh has again. there been any communication with people who fit that description? In other words, do the people that you know, are they communicating with Americans who had their passports taken by the Taliban who are still stuck in Afghanistan? Yeah, we've had we've had uh, email requests, you know, hey, we've lost our documents, Taliban took our documents, and now we're back in hiding. Uh, you know, Amazing. Requests for help that way. Uh, we, we get, we've got about 29,000 requests for help, by the way. I, I'll let Jason jump back in here in a moment too. I just one more question. I just that I've been thinking about constantly, and I keep asking guys who are who have either been working with people in Afghanistan during all of this or who have been there. Uh, do we know of the status? Obviously, we know we lost American troops, active duty American troops, in a suicide bombing uh, in the tail end of our military presence there. But what about Americans in country? What about Americans who are trying to make their way to the airport, trying to escape? Have you heard anything about any of those Americans losing their lives over these last few weeks? Yeah, uh, I haven't personally heard of American losing their life. Uh, what I've heard is uh, of, of many Americans being beaten, having yeah. their documents taken, uh, sent back to uh, to where they where they were staying, or we've also heard of uh, them being corralled at the Ariana Hotel, and then no more word of what happened to them. Uh, so the Ariana Hotel is a, you know kind of a hotel in the center of Kabul, and uh, we've heard that they were they were uh, collecting Americans there, um, and then you know you know. My, you can only imagine, you know, my mind only goes to the worst. Hmm. Uh, you know, I hope it's more of a hostage situation, not execution situation. Uh, what we're seeing with the SIVs, the SIVs are, you know, they found that they've been working with Americans, you know, kind of get firsthand stories of uh, beheadings. Uh, you know, some of Aziz's uh, people that worked, one of the guys that, that uh, Aziz and I used to work with um, was beheaded. Uh, taken from his family to be interviewed and his family was told go outside and get him and his head was cut off. Uh, we had a, we had, a, we had eyewitness of a, someone with their ID card being melted to their chest, their arms cut off. They were strung up behind a vehicle and, and drugged by the neck behind the vehicle and they took their, their uh, son. And this was all going on before August 31st. And this is a, again, this isn't things that I heard through rumor mill. This is, this is a, you know, from some of our guys on the ground, uh, you know, situation there was horrific. The Taliban was not, uh, you know, did not hold back. And, and right now, now that we're gone, uh, you know, the day we left, we you know, heard of the door to door executions beginning. And uh, this is, you know, firsthand from the ground. And now we're seeing uh, them intentionally holding Americans in the State Department, you know, uh, stopping flights uh, from leaving. Um, you know, it's, it's really in you know, my mind, you know, one kind of drifts and wonders what the motivation is. 
you know, uh, the only person who had anything to benefit from the withdrawal originally was China with the Hindu Kush mountain mineral rights. I've been saying this for months. I told Richard McGinnis this you know, a few months back. And then we seen on September 1st, uh, that, that the Taliban and China already agreed to, you know, Hindu Kush mineral rights for lithium in the mountains. And, uh, and so, you know, now, now that's easy to point to the pullout and why would that be, you know, who would benefit from that? But why are we, why are we leaving Americans there? Why are we not extracting yeah. Americans? I, you know, I can't find a why. Uh, and that really just you know, troubles me to not know why we would do that, why we would not. I mean, for me, like, you know, a life in special operations, I've said this a lot the last two weeks, there's been a big argument of how many people were there. My personal opinion is that there's five, at least 5,000 Americans still on the ground, not 200. That's based on the conservative math of uh, things the White House has put out and, uh, and the information I know on the ground. Uh, so I'd say 5,000, but that number is really irrelevant. If there's one American in, in, a, in harm's way somewhere, uh, I mean, from my background, we will scorch the earth to go get that one American. I mean, we will use every bit of military strength and military power to get that American. That's the American promise to the American people is wherever you are in the world, even if you got yourself in a bad situation, we were gonna come get you. And, uh, and, and I could tell you special operations uh, op, you know, that we were on to save even allies. Like I remember this one British journalist that my unit was gonna, was gonna go get in Afghanistan. And it's like, hey, we're probably gonna lose some people doing this. Like, let's, let's freaking do it. Like, we're gonna go get this person. This person needs our help. And that's the mentality. And now we have thousands of Americans and we give a deadline that we're gonna leave. There's no deadline. Like the deadlines when we're, we have our people. There's no like, we're gonna stay behind this line and we're gonna trust your help. No, we're gonna go out and we're gonna go get our people. And, and uh, so it's just unconsciousable to me that, uh, that our government, regardless of who's in the White House, at this point, I don't care, Trump, Biden, none of that matters. Who, it doesn't matter who's in the White House. The United States government has a responsibility to, to get our people safe. Mm. And, uh, you know. So, yeah. I, you know, you, you've said so many important things and, and I gotta say, I, I, it's left me with so many, so many questions. Um, my first, I guess, question, you know, is, is kind of a personal one because I think about times I've traveled places where lots of people look like me. So, you know, my wife is, uh, her family's from the Dominican Republic. And so we're always like really conscious of our passports because we're always like, you know, there, there's some guy in the Dominican Republic who's gonna be like, yeah, I'm, I'm Jason Nichols, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, or, or, you know, Africa or, you know, other places that I've been, you know, on the continent of Africa where there are people who look like me. So my fear, or not my fear, I shouldn't say that, certainly not my fear, but I could see how it could be some people's fear, particularly the people who are worried about um, people being resettled in the United States. I'm all for it, I'm pro-refugee, but I understand how some people may think that if you have evidence that people's documents are being taken by the Taliban, doesn't that create the fear that these documents could lead to some people sliding through and getting to the United States who may be enemies of the United States and create a terror, uh, you know, a terror fear uh, here on, on, you know, on our home soil. Uh, if people have documents, U.S. documents of someone who of Afghan descent um, could maybe come and pretend to be a refugee and, and put U.S uh you know put the us at, at in danger and my second question 
is what you think now that the uh, Afghan government has been uh, announced, you know, because some of some of the things that are going on and the conflicting things that Vince just talked about, I think it's because they didn't have a government. You know, there was no real, uh, you know, structure to what they were doing. Now they've announced at least an interim structure where they have uh, an emir whose son was a suicide bomber. And now you have uh, the um, Mullah, Mullah Akhund, I think his name is, who's going to be kind of the political leader. And I'm wondering what your reaction is to the uh, announcement of the Afghan interim government or the, excuse me, the, the Taliban interim government, uh, in addition to the, the fears that some may have of terror plots in the U.S. with stolen documents? Yeah. So your first question is yes. I mean, uh, this is why the State Department should never been in charge of the EO. This is, this is why uh, the Taliban should never been participating in our process to, to let people through. I mean, because now you have a tainted process that creates a, a risk for terrorism on the U.S. soil. So you're absolutely right. That is a fear. And everyone, including me, who's pro-refugee status for, uh, for SIV immigrants, uh, particularly, and uh, for orphans and widows, uh, I, I'm very much pro, like, we need to help these people. However, uh, you know, our State Department has created a scenario where that is a legitimate risk. And now they have a responsibility to highly vet these people at a deeper level because they don't know who they have. Uh, we were, you know, I could speak for our group, the 8,911 people that we put hands on to move in. We did a very good job of uh, categorizing them, triaging them, vetting the people to come through. But even those people, as good of a job we as we did, those people still need to be vetted before they're released into, into the, our culture in American society. The people that were put on those military planes had a lot less scrutiny than we had. And, uh, and we don't know who a lot of them are. A lot of them don't even have documentation at all. And so... Uh, because we allowed the Taliban to make to allow to maintain to provide that access, you're right. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a it should be a scary situation. Our State Department has a, a big responsibility to make sure that whoever finally makes it through the citizenship is highly vetted. Uh, but you know, pointing backwards, and I hate to always point backwards, but we kind of got to here. If we would have never allowed the Taliban to control that entry into HKIA, uh, this would be a lot less of an issue. The second piece uh, that to your question is about the, the Taliban government, which is like, it, it pains my, my mouth to speak those words. Uh, the Taliban government is, I mean, they're not different. They're not a government. They're not a legitimate uh, uh, a country, um, regardless. I mean, you could put lipstick on a pig and it's, it's still a pig. I mean, these are, this is the most brutal terrorist organization on the planet. And, uh, and you know, it should terrify everyone, not just in America, on the globe that they have a country now that they have 85 billion dollars in u.s equipment and technology because we chose to leave it to them that they are in a position now to give favors to china who could attack us by proxy with iran who could attack us by proxy uh with even working with russia i mean they have leveraging power now to get uh to to a lot ally with our you know our international threats that's a very scary scenario. And, uh, and so for the US government to acknowledge um, the Taliban as the rightful rulers of a country and a government is, uh, is going to be a, a major mistake in international, uh, on the international stage. And it's gonna make the world a lot more dangerous of a place. Uh, Chad Robichaud, I know you've been generous with your time and I know you've got some other things you have to get to. 
uh, real quickly, just share with people uh, how they can help your causes and, and what's the uh, and what's the thing you're focused on right now. Yeah, of course, Mighty Oaks uh, found, Foundation at MightyOaksPrograms.org. Uh, we we continually need support uh, for our military warriors who have suffered the hardships of, of their service, particularly particularly right now. I mean, our Afghan veterans are struggling. We're getting so many calls like I couldn't get my interpreter out, and it, you know, suicide attempts and suicide ideations, or trying to reconcile the things you asked. You guys asked earlier about, uh, you know, I, I think it was Jason that was asking earlier about like, how do these guys reconcile, uh, you know, us leaving the way we left. Uh, so we need to help them through that. So mightyoaksprograms.org is a, definitely a place we need your support. Uh, Saveourallies.org is, is another place because this is where we're helping Americans, SIVs, uh, orphans and, and, and women, Christian Christians who are going to be, would be persecuted. We got out 8,911. We supported another 3,000, so 12,000 that we got out. We still have rescue efforts going on that we need support with. I can't speak to what those are now because of obviously the conditions have changed and we have operational security. But on the back end, we have a responsibility. At least we go, we're taking a responsibility for 8,911 of them and making sure that they're going from home, that they lost everything, to a new home, wherever they end up, and that process is done with dignity, humanity, and respect. And uh, we're going to make sure that we see it all the way through. And uh, so a heavy lift for us, what we believe is to see this job through and see it done right. And, uh, and it's going to be a you know, pretty heavy financial burden. And so we need support with that. And America, I, I'm blown away at how generous America has been. Really what I'm most impressed by is people from different political ideologies and beliefs from the left and right has come together, support us at Save Our Allies to contribute to making this possible. I think in the last two weeks, we've raised about $1.6 million dollars. And uh, so to help, so it's just um, Americans have really been shown to be generous. I think in a, in a world where we've been told that America is uh, bigoted and racist and that we're not a nation of immigrants and we, uh, and we you know, hate each other. I, I just, I, I love how this, this has been an example. I try to find a silver lining in anything. This has been an example that has showed that, uh, that humans love other humans and that we're, we're not a people that hate, you know, of course there's hate everywhere, but we as a culture, as a, as a country, uh, are not people that hate, you know, people that love, and we're able to reach out and help people when they need help. Yeah, right yeah now, we're, we're, uh, you're right. We're a good country. Chad Robichaud, thank you. And Jason, I, I think uh, he put as fine a point as you can on what we're trying to do here with this program. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I agree. You know, hopefully people on the left and right can, can find common ground in humanity and in, in saving lives and trying to improve the lives of their countrymen. Thank you so much, Chad, for your time. Uh, congratulations on getting that fourth degree black belt from Carlson Gracie. Uh, you know, maybe one day we'll get to spar one, you know. Yeah, someday. let's do it, man. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. All thank right. You, thank guys. you. And, yep. and I just want to let everybody know, again, just uh, tell, uh, you know, a friend to tell a friend about Save Our Allies and about Mighty Oaks. We see the good work they're doing. And also like and subscribe to this show, Vince and Jason Save the Nation. You can find us on the Daily Caller YouTube, the Daily Caller Facebook, uh, watch, and of course, anywhere podcasts are found. Let's grow this show. Let's bring America back together. My Instagram is daily updates on this too. So just so you guys know. <laughs> daily updates. Yeah. Awesome. Got it. God bless you guys. Thanks, man. God bless.